0: Welcome back to the Free Trail Podcast. I am your host, Dylan Bowman, and today I have a very special episode for you all. It is, of course, the holiday season and the end of the year, a time when we all find ourselves reflecting and looking forward and setting goals and course correcting if we feel like we're on the wrong path. And it is also a time to be grateful for what we have and spend time with those we love. And in that spirit today, I am happy to share a conversation with my good friend, Jill Wheatley. Jill is likely not a familiar name to most of you, but she is one of the most inspiring people I have ever encountered. Jill is a Canadian Mountaineer and outdoor athlete who spends much of her time climbing and exploring in Nepal and in the Himalaya. Uh, But Jill and I met back in 2019, and we have since developed a great friendship. I've grown to admire Jill deeply for the person she is and the lessons that she has learned and shared from a life-changing injury that she incurred back in 2014. Uh, While she was teaching a physical education class living in Germany at the time, Jill suffered a traumatic brain injury that left her 70% blind and in the hospital for several months. I won't spoil some of the details from our conversation, but Jill has some really profound perspective and lessons to share about how we can use the lowest moments of our lives to learn and transform and to launch ourselves into periods of deep inspiration and personal growth. I also want to say here on the front end that we talk at the end of this episode about Jill's upcoming project, which she is calling Vision 8000, an amazing name, awesome name. And it is her goal with Vision 8000 to climb all 14 of the world's 8000 meter peaks to inspire others who have suffered traumatic brain injuries or who are visually impaired as she is. We've set up a GoFundMe for Jill to make this dream a reality. Uh, we here at Free Trail made the first donation to that campaign, and it is my hope that we, the loving, compassionate, and supportive people in the trail running community, will get behind Jill on this adventure. So please, if you are inspired by her story and have the means to make a Christmas donation, this is a very worthy cause. A very worthy. Adventure to get behind. You will find the link in the show notes to the GoFundMe campaign so that you can get inspired and give what you can. Before we get to it, a big thank you to those who registered for the Gorge Waterfalls 100K and 50K, which we announced last week on the podcast. It is happening here in Oregon on April 2nd and 3rd, 2022. The 50K is already sold out, but you can put your name on the wait list for that race or you can register for the 100k. Why not? Uh we still have some spots in the 100k. Uh also you may have seen that earlier this week we made an announcement that we will have a $12,000 prize purse. Out of respect for the professional athletes in our sport, uh the podium finishers in the 100k will earn $3,000, 2,000 and $1,000. Respectively for first, second, and third place finishers in the men's and women's 100K race at Gorge Waterfalls. So if you are trying to make a career for yourself as an athlete in this sport, please come compete for some cold, hard cash at the Gorge Waterfalls 100K on April 2nd. Finally, this episode is sponsored by Compressport, the great trail running compression and apparel brand based in Annecy, France. They are truly amazing people with a phenomenal product, And we could not be happier to have them on board as a sponsor of what we're trying to do. Please go Christmas shopping for yourself or your loved ones at Compressport.com and use code FREETRAIL20, all capitals, FREETRAIL20 for 20% off your purchases. Okay, that's it, on with the show. Honestly, I'm pretty proud of this episode. I think you all will grow to admire Jill and be inspired by her story and her message. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. We'll see you in the outro. Jill Wheatley, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you, Dylan. It's great to see you.
0: You as well. Tell us where you're broadcasting from and and what you're doing.
1: I'm in the heart of Canmore, Alberta. I'm taking a rest day um, from some ice climbing. So I'm doing some technical training for bigger projects ahead.
0: Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Canmore, as you and I have spoken about, I've never been there, but it seems like the ultimate mountain recreation destination in what is it sort of like the central Canadian Rockies? That's right. In the area? Yeah. yeah. Not
1: Amazing. that much unlike Aspen actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where you and I met, which is where I want to start. Let's rehash the story of our meeting because I think it'll set up the entirety of our conversation. So why don't you uh, provide your perspective and then I'll chime in when you're done.
1: Uh, well, we met uh, one morning. Uh, we You came and picked me up in your truck with the dogs, which was uh, a great connection. Uh, But before that, our mutual friend, Mayel, I guess, just realized our our likes, our background uh, and thought that there would be a good connection. And we were in the same place at the same time, though he couldn't be there. um, We met up to um, to talk a little bit about um, our trails
0: <laughs> yes and, uh,
1: they they connected and we walked um yeah we walked through hunter valley with the pups and yeah. there was just like a real um a connection um, i felt um yeah uh instantly comfortable and um there was just empathy there you know you're you're feeling with the stories i was sharing with you and um yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was it was a very special day for me too, Jill. And just to provide my perspective, again, yeah, we were connected via our mutual friend, the great Mile Backhausen, who I think has been a, a special person for both of us through the course of our lives and careers. And in the connection, Mile didn't really share with me who you were or what your story was. It was just like, hey, Jill's in Aspen, you guys should connect. And as you came to know, that was like pretty much the darkest period of my life. I think this was June of 2019. And Mm -hmm. I was, I think, two or three months at that point removed from the fracture of my left ankle and all the physical and emotional trauma that came from being a pro athlete who was unable to compete and all the existential identity crises that we go through in those periods of adversity. And also with Harmony and I's moving away from the Bay Area where we felt very much at home. And I think I underestimated just how disruptive that would be to my internal health and then to be connected with you and to go on a walk in Hunter Valley with the dogs and just have a very deep personal human conversation where I came to know your story, it was incredibly inspiring and also helped to provide some perspective to what I was going through. And so I'm very happy to have you on the podcast where we can share your story with a wider audience who I think will be equally inspired. But before we get to sort of um, the core of your story and what you've been up to you know, in the last several years, I think just to set some context, why don't we just talk a little bit about who you are, where you're from in a nutshell and, uh, how you came to be, uh, where you are, I guess, like up until 2014, which we'll, we'll go into great detail about.
1: Okay. Um, And I'll do this. I just want to just jump back a little bit, Dylan, because when we talk, when I think, when I hear you talk right now, um, the vulnerability and being authentic, like sharing my story, I had no idea at the time that you were in such a dark place. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing and following you along since then, I really feel that you have grown with respect to that authenticity and putting it all out there. And with the, the combination of the vulnerability and the authenticity. It's just this connection that I feel, um, you know, when, when we put ourselves out there, people connect to that. It's the real shit.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so there was like an instant comfort, even though, um, you know, I didn't know how dark you were or how how dark of a space that you were in at the time.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway. Okay. (laughs) The goosebumps, I feel like thinking back to that day and, um, how I opened up, um, and how perhaps it
0: I mean, it was, it was a, yeah, it was an important day for me, honestly. And that's not to say that uh, it immediately brought me to a more positive place. In fact, I struggled for probably another 12 months after that. But you're right. And I think this will be a theme of our conversation is that it's those really, really hard times that sort of launch us into. Incredible chapters of our lives, which I feel like you and I are both living right now. So, yeah. so again, let's uh, let's just talk yeah. about uh, talk about your background a little bit before we we go into into depth with your story.
1: Sure. Well, um, so I'm originally Canadian from Northern Ontario, small town, very outdoors family. Uh, weekends were spent camping, um, skiing, anything outdoors, really very active. Um, And my parents always encouraged that uh, with my brother and my sister and I, Uh, we moved around quite a bit um, growing up just within Ontario. Um, But I always had this love for outdoors. And as, as we moved and as I grow that, that just continued to grow as well Um, after high school. um, So high school, you know, very active in, in sport and Physical education was my favorite subject. (laughs) Um, And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, I thought the only, you know, everyone was going to university or college. And so I felt like I should go. Um, Not necessarily because that's what I really wanted, um, but I didn't know what I wanted. So I just followed. Um, Physical education and psychology were sort of... um, the the reason I was there, but I really feel I learned a lot more out of the lecture hall or or my classes um, in university, you know, with with the friends and more of the social scene. Um, so I did graduate, um, though I still felt really lost and unsure what to do. Um I think we can all relate to that
0: feeling after graduating <laughs> from university. It's not
1: just me. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and again i just falling into the shoulds you know what society sort of sh- tells us what we mm. should be doing yeah. and um so based on that passion for physical activity and some very influential coaches in my life one coach specifically i thought well if i can integrate physical education sports um and my career then maybe maybe teaching could be an option Hmm. So I did. I'm um, not sure how, but somehow I managed to get into Teachers College, which at that time was quite difficult in Canada or where I was from. Um, and so, yeah, so I got a teaching degree, but at the time there was not well, not a lot of teaching options or uh, jobs out there. So I decided I would figure things out in the mountains. I would Take I got on a plane with my mountain bike and decided I would go up to Whistler, BC. I'm just pointing like it's just a couple
0: mountains <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> pretty case. much is, yeah. Um <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so I went out to Whistler and I just thought I'll, something I'll fall into place. And it actually quickly did, not necessarily in the direction I was hoping it would. Um, I was pretty keen on just playing in the mountains. Um, but I did get a teaching job uh, back in Ontario, so that was a bit short-lived, however so was the job I got yeah. um, and with cutbacks and being the young teacher sort of the, on the bottom of the seniority list. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't even a full year before I was told that I didn't have a job. And so, um, As life has it, I connected trails with someone who had just returned from a leave of absence in Singapore. He had been teaching there and I thought, that sounds like a pretty good gig. Um, Not necessarily Singapore, but the fact that it's um, a great place for for traveling, for access to New Zealand, Australia, all of Southeast Asia. And I was, yeah, really fresh out of college. single I could travel on weekends, I could explore, you know, on my holidays. And so that's what I did expecting um that I would be back or go for the 2 years of the contract and then come back to Canada and maybe start to grow up after that.
0: Yeah, which uh yeah, again we can all uh identify with is like <laughs> I'm still wondering when I'm going to grow up. But Jill, I'm curious uh, about this coach you just mentioned that was highly influential for you and just connecting the dots between what I know about you now as an amazing writer, as a storyteller, and as sort of a, a coach in your own way, I feel like, and somebody who it sounds like had some experience or interest in, in sports psychology as well. I, I'm curious what about this coach was influential to you and what sort of message he espoused and how that has maybe influenced where you are now.
1: Sure. So from my, my, my earliest childhood memories are on the ski hill and in, in Northern Ontario. And my coach, his name is Brian and, um, his just, uh, his work ethic and, um, his passion and his love for the sport, like being the first on the hill in the morning and being the last off the hill in the evening. It just, um, there was a connection. And I think also with my learning style, he really tapped into that, you know, I'm very kinesthetic hands on.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, and so he, he met me there you know he he tailored um his coaching his his leading um to what really i connected with mm-hmm. um, so those you know when i think back to school as as, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, it's the lessons on the ski hill that, you know, that have stuck with me, not the, not the book work or the sitting in a classroom. So
0: beautiful. Yes. I mean, I so feel the same way, you know, sport was always my education. I think it was always the thing that made me feel Inspired and where, yeah, you. I always wanted to learn more and get better. When I was in the classroom, it wasn't like I was obsessed with what I was doing, you know. But in sport, I was just always obsessed and wanting to learn and seeking out information. And then I would just go through the motions as a student, you know. So absolutely, and it's only
1: till after that I realized or recognized the lessons, you know, that were being taught. unstructured, yeah. but those are the ones that have stuck with me. And, um,
0: this is forward. why sport is so critical for kids to be exposed to. Yes. And so I guess like to fast forward, you made this kind of a, a core part of your personal mission or your livelihood at that point too. So let's uh, fast forward to when you found yourself in Bavaria, how did you find yourself there, uh, teaching, And then, uh, yeah, once we have that established, we'll go into how your life changed when you were there.
1: Sure. So from Singapore, um, I sort of caught that travel bug. Um, I I stuck around for four years rather than the two um, and then got connected with this international school scene. So, you know, there's um, diplomats or international um, business people who have their children overseas. And so there's schools specifically designed for them. Um, I ended up going to something very different culturally from Singapore to Russia. So I spent some time in St. Petersburg and Moscow. And then from there, um, I knew that I, at that point, i it, it, it became clear that um, it wasn't really you know i was I was falling into the shoulds again mm. career. I need, I need to go higher and higher and higher in you know, not just a teacher. I need to be the grade level leader. I need to be the department head. I need to be the principal. And I was doing all of this. And then literally, I can tell you exactly where I was one day downtown Moscow, and I realized, I'm not doing this anymore. This is ridiculous. Mm. Um, And so my next, my move sort of from administration in schools in Russia was to Switzerland, where when I I think of who I am now, Switzerland is kind of very representative Mm -hmm. of the mountains and the outdoors and where I could combine my my own education and my career um, with my passion for outdoors and skiing and biking and running. So I ended up in Switzerland. And again, uh, life doesn't always go the way we anticipate or necessarily the way we hope. I use that word lightly. Um, And visa issues came up, so I couldn't stay. Um, But fortunately, uh, three hours down the Autobahn, so down the main highway in in Germany, I got a job at the Munich International School. And it was... um, serendipitous, um, high school. Um, so the international baccalaureate program where I was teaching health and sports science and physical education. Mm -hmm. So I got there first year, a little bit rough because Switzerland and Germany are not quite as, um, in sync as some may think. Um, but got my, you know, got myself, Grounded, I got a really great place on this farm living above a barn. Um, you know, <laughs> out, you could see Garmisch, uh, the highest point in Germany.
0: Garmisch is an amazing place,
1: it is. Yeah. Yeah. Harmony yeah. and I
0: went there a couple of years ago and we were blown away like one of our <laughs> favorite <laughs> trips ever. I did the uh, Ultra Trail, the Zugspitz Ultra yeah. Trail. Yes, yeah. uh, awesome yeah. race, awesome race.
1: So on weekends I could just get in my car, I could cycle, mountain bike, road bike, skis in the back, go to Garmish, whatever. Yeah. Um, that first year I was just figuring all those things out: the trails, my colleagues, and um, and then you know it's starting to feel settled. And then in the second year things um, took a real serious turn. The second yeah. year. Yeah.
0: So. Let's get to that in just a sec, but one of the things that I am struck by that you've said a couple of times now that I think is beautiful and that might be a theme of our conversation here is that you are falling into the shoulds, right? Mm -hmm. And this I think is a powerful message that you can leave people with and that I think a lot of people could probably point to moments in their lives when they fell into the shoulds Mm -hmm. at the expense of their personal satisfaction or their personal personal health. So uh, I just wanted to, to flag that because you've said it a couple of times and it's it's struck me and knowing you and knowing your story and then sort of identifying with my own moments of falling into the shoulds, too. I think it's an important thing to consider for all of us. But as you mentioned, life changed shortly yeah. thereafter in September of 2014. So tell that story for the audience.
1: So I was teaching um, high school physical education on this particular Wednesday morning. It was um, a gray, um, kind of hazy um, wet, damp morning, um, not really ideal weather conditions for an outdoor PE class, according to most. Um, however, so so my colleagues decided to keep their students, their classes indoors. Um, and I growing up where I did and um, the values of my parents, I think that they instilled in me was, you know, my love for outdoors and nature and just putting on some good gear, some quality jackets pants what have you and get outside um rather than being in a stuffy gymnasium changing the goals of the lesson or what have you because because you might get a little bit damp sure. uh, and so we went outside this is 10th grade so my students were around 16 years old pr- about 20 of them and uh we were super excited and I say we because I feel like my passion for for the class um really came through with my students you know you can tell if if I feel you can tell if somebody really is enjoying what they're doing, and um, and that's why I stuck with or went back to physical education and and um, make, making those lessons memorable and those students who maybe like we were referring to earlier, you know, the math teacher is having problems with this student because they're distracted or they're not focused in class, but if I'm in a meeting with that, those faculty members, um, I see the students very differently because of my, the relationship I can build through sport and physical education. Yeah. Um, so I, I really did feel passionate about my job. Um, and yeah, so we were, we were warming up, we were running, we were do, doing a, a warm up activity and then we broke off into three groups. I, uh, learning centers, let's say. And um, everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. We had been working on um, connection games, so, where you're connecting an object or connecting two objects, for example, um, a tennis racket and a tennis ball. And But on this particular uh, lesson, we had been uh, being introduced to baseball bats for the first time. So we had been d- done some throwing and catching in the initial lessons, uh, but I was pretty excited. And so were they to actually start making that connection between bat and ball. And... Like I said, everybody was doing what they were supposed to be. I was with one group um, sort of at the equivalent of third base. There was another group at home plate and another one way out in right field. Mm -hmm. And um, I was sort of my head turned the opposite direction, uh, speaking with a small group of students. And the next thing you knew, I was um, grabbing my head and and kind of falling um, as a sort of the equivalent, what is estimated at about 90 kilometers, 80 to 90 kilometers an hour, a hardball to the right side of my head. So I knew immediately that there was something wrong um, and that I needed help. At the same time, I'm trying to... keep myself aware, keep myself conscious. Like I knew, um, there was, I needed help. So yeah. trying to calmly get a student to get help from, from the school, which was probably 150, 200 meters away mm-hmm. um, to run. And, and so from there, uh, the next month or so was actually my memory is in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but this particular scene, um, I feel, you know, like a, a Bavarian Eagle watching down on this field, yeah. um, uh, just the, the memory of it all and how I envision what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I was quickly, uh, I was taken to hospital. I, I, I really didn't want to. Um, I thought.
0: You uh, thought that was like an overreaction or something. It was just like, you hit your head. Because I know you said that immediately you knew that something serious had happened. What was that? Because I think that's also interesting, Jill, is like, especially with what happened next. And we can talk about this where the doctors initially just kind of sent you home, but your initial instinct. And I think we all have these sort of, yeah, things that we feel on a, on a deep, but somewhat subtle level that, in your case, this is actually very serious. So talk about what happened when you went to the hospital and and just kind of where where your head was at um, psychologically at that point.
1: So instantly my right eye closed um, and the nausea sort of kicked in and just the, my, my head, um, felt like it was going to explode mm-hmm. literally. And I remember being in my friend's car who was taking me to the hospital and feeling like I was in a washing machine. That's, I remember sort of being curled up and just feeling like my, my head, would Um, but we got to the hospital and into the emergency room. And I remember a doctor being right in my face. I remember bright lights, Uh, I'm doing this, like I'm lying on the bed. I remember the cold cold metal and the green, like um, surgical gowns and stuff. And some questions, I don't remember all the questions, but apparently I was coherent enough to give them the answers that they felt were passable.
0: Yeah. So you're sort of going through the concussion protocol type stuff. Yeah.
1: Basic, yeah. Um, My name, probably where am I? -hmm. And yeah, the basics um and i passed the test and even though deep within i i did feel like there's more than just a black eye yeah um, that i'm just a pe teacher um and they, these are medical professionals they're trained to work in the emergency room and deal with serious mm-hmm. injuries mm-hmm. and they're saying i'm okay so i follow
0: yeah.
1: and don't question um their expertise and i'm supposed to be doing a race this weekend so i have i've got to go do have yeah. a race this weekend i got to toughen up um you know my the coach i referred to earlier was always, oh, you know be tough you're, you're yeah. strong you can do and um and so at home my my two friends brought me and um vomiting sat in and I can't get myself up to go to the toilet mm-hmm. to use, to vomit there. Um, so things got pretty messy and I didn't have even ice. I had a bag of frozen berries in a small freezer. That's, um, you know, this tiny apartment just had a little bar fridge basically. And I was using that to try to soothe the pain and vomit in it at the same time. Cause it was in like a Ziploc.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember, um, People trying to communicate and check check in on me. And just the, you know, there's something really wrong. But but again, inside of me, this voice saying, Well, they're doctors. They said it's yeah, black eye, and I'm gonna be okay. And so I'm gonna race this weekend. And it's Wednesday, and my friend's coming tomorrow, and he's yeah. gonna drive me to go race at this long distance duathlon in, in Switzerland. So it's just my eye, I can see out of the other eye. So let's go.
0: Yeah. So Ultimately, it was much more serious than what the doctors had initially diagnosed. You suffered a traumatic brain injury from the impact of this baseball, which yes. affected <laughs> affected not only your right eye on the side where the impact occurred, but ultimately left you with only 30% of the vision that you had had for your whole life. Yeah. So... I guess, yeah, kind of pick up there when you're when you're at home, you're telling yourself to be tough mm-hmm. still probably having that gnawing feeling internally, that instinct that this is serious yeah what 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 happened from there because I know at that point you're you sort of entered a phase of your life when you were in and out of hospital for months and months and months,
1: yeah, so my friend showed up um as planned to take me to this race, but instead he brought me back to that same hospital. And soon there or immediately thereafter I was put in an ambulance and taken to a neurotrauma center. So as you mentioned, Dylan, my it was a traumatic brain injury and my skull was actually fractured. So the ball hit on the basically on the right hand side, sort of just above my ear and and uh caused the, the brain to fracture. Um, and my inside, my brain was bleeding and swelling. So the black eye was in fact, the blood coming from the brain. And with each passing hour, minute, the blood was moving. So my whole face ended up sort of purple, blue, um, more than just that black so, eye. So
0: the feeling that your head was gonna explode was internal bleeding in It your head. was, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was in fact exploding. Yeah, it's a, um, pre- a feeling of pressure probably.
1: Absolutely. And so the, the um, neuro team, my neurotraumatic traumatic uh, team, they, once they realized what this actually was, the focus was on the brain and controlling the swelling, controlling the bleeding um, and not the eye. So the, the focus on the brain was such that um, their belief was that the eye would clear so the blood, you know, once the brain stopped bleeding, the blood would eventually clear and I would get the movement back in my right eye. So it would it would open again. Mm-hmm. And at you know, that I had some vision coming out of my left eye. It was completely blood filled as well. Hmm. So the white part of my eye, you could just red in the white part of my eye had yeah. ready purple. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was just really difficult to fathom. You know, it's it's not like you you can't see like it wasn't um, the skin wasn't broken um, and you can't put a cast on a brain, you know, you can't or a, a skull. Yeah. Uh, So it's, it's somewhat of an invisible injury, except for the fact that you could see something clearly was wrong with my face. With a brain injury, there's so much more than just, um, you know, that the brain bleeding and swelling I had. So the physical, the, the eye, but then the cognitive function, the sensation and the emotion that all comes with that. And my appetite from the time of impact from the time that I was at my room, um, you know, in my own vomit, any association with foods from that time just became repulsive immediately.
0: Um, You know, so- That's so fascinating.
1: My relationship with food from that, you know, from that impact,
0: done. Yeah, it's, I mean, so it's so indicative of just the complexity of our brains, right, (laughs) where the impact on that side of your brain then made it so that you didn't want to eat anymore mm-hmm. it's so bizarre isn't it to think it of just is. how complex and important our brains are
1: it's it's multifaceted because not, not only the area of the brain that controls the appetite was affected but also just the that association itself um, mm. being being sick and so any foods from that time, Um, you know, when we go on kicks, like it might be mangoes might be in season or apple season and you just, so at that time, any foods that I had been, you know, that summer training, eating a lot of nothing. You could not convince me to eat. And so it's that- like,
0: it's like the phenomenon when we drink too much of a certain type of alcohol, and then we can't do it anymore because we get so hungover, <laughs> but, uh, like that, obviously drink
1: it again. Yeah, yes, exactly. A lot of retraining, Yeah. Uh, but also another diagnosis. Yeah.
0: So Jill, you know, obviously now your attitude about this accident is so admirable and you have just the most amazing inspirational message, through your writing and through your social media and just through how you conduct yourself in the world. But I know it took time to arrive at a place to where you could have some perspective about this accident. And that like my own dark night of the soul that I described at the beginning of our conversation, you went through your own period of of darkness and depression surrounding this accident. So talk about that. Talk about that, um, uh, sort of moment in your life when you s- had to come to terms with the fact that this wasn't going to be a temporary injury, mm-hmm. that this wasn't going to be something that you would just be able to move through and recover from as you would a normal sports injury and just the psychological, emotional way to that?
1: I think it took a, or it, it did take years, literally like more than months, years. Um, and I, I still th- feel like just listening to you, to you say that about, about learning and that most learning comes accidentally. And so I've learned so much because of this accident. Um, but it's taken time and, you know, at that time when things got really, really dark uh, the pushing of the goalposts, so my eyes going to get better once the brain stops bleeding, once it clears, and then it would be, you know, it needs maybe two more weeks. And just with the, that push of every goalpost. My hope deteriorated. It just kept getting darker and darker to a point where I lost all hope for life. I had lost any belief that things were going to get better, and I didn't want them. Uh, when when it became so, at six months from the time of the accident, when I could see um, a neuro ophthalmologist, so a very very specialized um, ophthalmologist, to confirm the other. The, the neuro doctors, the eye doctors, but this specialist at the six month point saying, You're not going to get your vision back. And this woman, um, this doctor who was um, empathetic, she was, um, but, but relaying this message to me, um, you know, with, with compassion. However, um, it was just at that point, I can't drive it. They took my driver's license away immediately. I can't put those skis in the back. I can't put the bikes on the roof. The Subaru is sold. Yeah. I can't drive anymore. I've lost all this autonomy. There's no point in living. So I really felt, you know, life couldn't get any better. Um, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. The focus became on that 70% of everything that I couldn't do, not just not just the loss of vision, but that loss of autonomy and the loss of independence. So I just felt like, you know throw my, any values out, out the window. I, this is it. I'm done. I I don't want to live to see another day because I can't, I can't do these things. So,
0: yeah.
1: um, you know, and at that time, if somebody said, oh, things will get better or don't worry, you know, you can't, for me, I, I couldn't, I couldn't hear that. It was not the right thing. It was not what I needed. Mm-hmm. And it just, I think it frustrated me further where I was pushing people away because I, I didn't feel that anybody could really understand what I was going through. Um, and yeah, I, i lost control. Uh, you know, the decisions uh, were made by doctors uh, power of attorney because I was so unwell was given uh, to else. Um, so it's I, the loss
0: of autonomy that is probably just completely Overwhelmingly depressing. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. 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 So, Jill, I just want to read a couple sentences here from your website, which is fantastic. And we will plug it many times (laughs) mountainsofmomind.com, where you chronicle all (laughs) your amazing achievements in the world, (laughs) many of which are in inhospitable landscapes that, you know, (laughs) certainly most people who have not been through a similar traumatic experience to you wouldn't approach themselves with 100% vision and you're so so freaking inspiring so i just want to read a couple sentences here because i think it'll set up the rest of our conversation what you say is i reflect today on the black eye that never again opened working at embracing impermanence and celebrating what i've gained from the lessons of my traumatic brain injury I walked out of the hospital 70% blind with no direction. The only sign I could see pointed towards the mountains. And so eventually, you stabilize to the point where you can leave the hospital and you can start to try and reorganize some semblance of a life. And I know you decided at that point to spend a year traveling. To mountain destinations. And I think this is the point where you started to accept your situation and where the fog of depression started lifting. So talk about this period of your life.
1: Sure. So I felt uh, I, again, coming back to that word, should I didn't want to go into a city. I didn't, um, there was shame because um society tells us what we huh. should look like and mm. um and what we should do and i i just felt you know the the complexity of my brain injury and noise i didn't want to be in society so going to mountains a large part of it was that just being in nature i'll figure things out on my own um in the mountains and i thought that no mountain could really challenge me the way that my traumatic brain injury has and at that point it was just like, um, wander and wonder, you know, just walking, hiking and, and feeling like, okay, something within a year in these 13 different masses, I'm going around the world here. Um, I had, I had set up, you know, uh, The geography of the of the travel based on being out of cities, being in mountains, um, avoiding snow because the stories that my mind were telling me was that with my vision, you know, I'm never going to be able to move efficiently in snow. I'm not going to be able to ski again. So, screw that! Like I I need to stay, you know, be in South America when when the sun is shining and be in Europe when I can um, be on the trails, not in snow. So, but it was only during that you know that first year was in retrospect, it was, I was still caught up in this, um, struggle with accepting that this was actually the way that life was going to be like, and recognizing, you know, when I get to certain places and going back to Colorado to thank those doctors that saved my life was incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, but that I can't move around to get from Denver to the Rockies, because I don't drive anymore. So there was just, there's still this ongoing um, struggle with acceptance and Mm. um, you know, the, the cycle of, of acceptance has never been cyclical at all. Even today, you know, I, I, as much as I say, and try to feel like this is the way it is, there's still moments of struggle and um, it's real. And so, you know, in in mountains of my mind, I I talk about that or I write about that um, because I do feel like, how you and I have connected, Dylan, the vulnerability and being authentic is what people connect to. And even though um, many of my photos now are in Mm -hmm. mountains where there are pretty, uh, you know, pretty Alpine pictures and and summit sunrises, um, I really try to write about how I got there or what's really going on. Um, Because for so long- The mountain
0: is a a metaphor for confronting adversity. in yeah. all cases. Yeah.
1: There that first year, I was still really caught up in shame. Um, you know, when I talk about being in the mountains, and what I feel, people ask me about this, what I mean, and I feel that shame is this really intense, uh, painful feeling or belief that I'm so fucked up or I'm so flawed that I'm not worthy of, of love and belonging. Huh. So, um yeah. my value as a human, I felt was, um, is less because I look different than I should, you know, my, I've got this traumatic brain injury. I'm visually impaired. I've got an eating disorder. I've got this PTSD shit going on. My memory is, has been a mess. So I've got all these complications or these, um, yeah, these flaws. And so this struggle with, with shame has taken a long time to, um, to work through and, um, it's in the mountains where it sort of all starts to make sense. Um, and I just need right now, specifically, even right now, I'm trying, I need to work on that. Um, and the acceptance that I feel when I'm in the mountains and what the peace that it brings me and the acceptance and the, you know, letting go of this shame, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, when I am in a city or, um, you know, around people more, um, to, to work on the equanimity that I struggle with. You know, I, it's it's much easier. It comes much more naturally for me in the mountains. Yeah, um, yeah. But when I surround myself with society or get caught, you know, when I come, you know, this is the
0: first time I've been in North America for since I saw you last. Yeah. Um, then, then you have to confront those feelings of shame a little bit. Yeah. More. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So let's bring our good friend, Mael, back into the story because I think this, this part is very important because... For those who don't know him, he is truly one of the world's most special human beings. Mm -hmm. And I know that it was him that you opened up to pretty much for the first time. He was one of the first people to whom you shared your story. And he's, of course, who connected us. And he's a dear friend of mine. In fact, I am trying to get him to move to the United States so that he can work for us with our little business here because oh, it'd be amazing. I love him so much um, and he's been just such not only a great friend but an incredibly valuable person in my career. He's crewed for me at four different races in my career and all four of them I've won. And like every no, time I try and like do something for him, you know and like in in any sort of way, he always like, declines and he, yeah, is just always happy to help, you know, just one of the world's great people. So bring my L back into the story because it's, it's important to, to emphasize, I think.
1: So important. He has been so significant in in my life, uh, in my recovery. When I use the word recovery lately, um, but in my growth, let's say. Um, So, It was about six months into this first year of travel where I got convinced, um, you know, I wasn't a a running, a racer, uh, mountain running. I didn't race at all um but i got connected with someone who convinced me to try the the annapurna 100 so in nepal and um just quickly i so i thought if i get my start myself to the start line uh, it's a win um or even to register was a win yeah. got myself to the start line got myself to the finish line and i did <laughs> um you know i'm it just, it's, it seemed a bit like a fairy tale at the time. Like, can this actually be ha- happening? Um, and i have never done a mountain race. I'm doing this visually impaired and all these things. And less than 10 months earlier, I was in hospital. So things felt like, wow, um, a, a real high. But the story doesn't end there. I got connected with the race director who said, um, hey, what's next? Like, we have this Manislu trail race that's you know 10 or 12 days um you should stick around and come and i had at that point i had a ticket to New zealand and i thought and i said like no sorry i'm i gotta travel keep going and that, <laughs> That night, I'm like Jill. What are you thinking? It's just an airplane ticket that can be changed. Yeah, and that was a huge dis- now, in retrospect, uh, a huge decision. So I decided to change that flight. Stuck around. I didn't even know what Manaslu was at the time, but in fact, it's the eighth highest mountain in the world. And, and we- we'll
0: we'll get back to that here later <laughs> in our conversation. Yeah,
1: we so we raced around it um, as a stage race, and every morning, no matter where I am. Um, My morning starts with my journal and that comes back to hospital where friends, um, visitors would make notes each, each day, whether it be the morning, it doesn't irrelevant. Um, but because I couldn't do it at the time, like my speech was off, my writing, my, um, uh i was basically working with a speech pathologist um a little bit of dyslexia had it even set in mm-hmm. so other people would write and then slowly i started to take that over and it's become a daily um just the way i start daily my therapy. journaling journaling practice yeah yeah just pen and paper always
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so early each morning before before the um the race would begin um I would be sitting in the tea house, dark, cold, and still writing, but Maël would see this happening. And, and after a few days, he was um, politely curious um, and just sort of asked about what I was, what I was writing about, what, you know, what, what's going on? What, and what are you doing so early in the morning? And I started, his approach was such that um, I just felt a connection. There was, um, I I guess that word empathy, I think I referred to earlier when we first met him and that feeling with, you know, I feel that, you know, I don't want sympathy. Don't, you know, um, nothing. I don't want anyone to ever feel sorry for me. Yeah. Empathy goes so far and, and he was trying to understand, you know, me trying to understand how I feel after what I had been through. So asking, um, you know, questions about, how I do and what I'm doing and and how I really am, like that real check-in, you know, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Um, because I really in a social setting, I tend to initially especially, you know, come back to that shame. At that point, I was still dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. these people are all um, you know, some of them were professional sponsored athletes and males running for this and this, you know, and and I'm just like, I just like being in the mountains and yeah. got in the right place, and here I am. Um, but he just had this. Um compassion and yeah. and like initiating deep conversation and the desire to listen, I think that's what it really was. It wasn't just like, yeah, you're good, uh, but you know the the connection that I feel um between an authentic and honest exchange like it what it's not just um surface, yeah, conversations with my I'll go deeper and I felt that and so, yeah, I started to open up with him, and um, the race went on, and back to Australia, and then New Zealand. He went, and we um, we ended up connecting in New Zealand.
0: Um, but he You've been friends ever since.
1: He certainly had <laughs> them other a few times, but he was the one that, with those conversations and that connection and the desire to listen, helped me. You know, me listening to him, taking that in was a big part of me shifting that perspective from the 70% that I had lost to that which I have gained. Yeah. Shift, and that shift in perspective, me sharing the, some tales from my
0: trails. He
1: said, he, and I, I remember this, he's like, Jill, you need to share this
0: shit. Yeah. And so talk about the magazine thing real quick.
1: so so sharing this shit he felt when uh trail running meg from australia australia new zealand's version of trail running magazine um contacted him to sort of recount his experience at the trail race he said no my story is not good enough you need to
0: talk to jill and so i got this goosebumps man goosebumps (laughs) so my l it's so my l isn't it yeah
1: And I I, I remember, again, it's one of those moments, I know exactly where I was sitting at this table at this place that I was staying at. And I was reading this going, he, you know, this guy really cares and he he does think it's worth sharing. So what Trail Running Magazine did is they took Mayel's version of his experience on Manus and, um... Weaved, we sort of made a quilt of his story, his experience, and my experience. Weave yeah. them together into this beautiful story um, that really has has helped. Well, I mean, it was part of our, our relationship sort of flourishing at first. The back and forth writing and sharing. Yeah. Um, but then, can you
0: can you find that story and, and email it to me? I know I've read it in the past, but I would love to if we can find a link to it share it with the audience. Yeah. Okay, great. Amazing. So, Um, so this is like, I guess, just to summarize what you said, like, this is a special moment for you, because it helps you to understand that it's not necessarily about the 70% that you've lost, but there's a lot to celebrate about what you can still do and the perspective that you've gained from going through such a horrible personal experience. And I think this is a Theme of our entire conversation, and that I think a lot of people will resonate with, is that it is those really trying periods of our lives that help us to grow and transform and metamorphosize into versions of ourselves that we would never have dreamt possible. And I very much feel that way about myself right now. And I have a direct connection to where I am now and what I'm working on now, which I'm completely obsessed with and in love with. And where I was when you and I met, which was a horrible, horrible place. <laughs> but I want to also just share too, because this just came into my head something about Madge Mael, who we affectionately call Madge occasionally. <laughs> he and I you know we text often on on WhatsApp, and we catch up on the phone probably once a month or something. But when we text each other, we always at the end put in capital letters l k and a, which means loving kindness and acceptance. So going back to your, uh, the, the, the thing that, uh, we were just talking about the importance of acceptance, you know, and that being kind of like the first step towards healing from these traumatic Situations. It's another, uh, I think, fun connection that brings magic into the story too. So LK and A is how we sort Love of it. sign off our text exchanges: loving kindness and acceptance. And right. actually, I'm I'm reading an, an awesome book right now uh, by a guy named Brad Stolberg. It's called The Practice of Groundedness, and the first the whole, the whole first chapter is about this phenomenon or this concept of acceptance. So I think it's an important thing to flag. And the other thing, Jill, that you talk about all the time, that's part of your personal philosophy is approaching everything as an opportunity to celebrate impermanence.
1: Yeah, Talk about that. Uh, Again, that, that can actually be brought back to my, (laughs) Um, because when I met him, um, he had just come off his first experience with, with Vipassana and, um, and he was so high on it. um, He just wanted to talk and talk and talk about it. And at that point, um, in fact, in hospital, in, in, in sort of, recovery center the last of my recovery centers um meditation was introduced and not pushed upon but um strongly encouraged and I I had no time for that um you know again it was part of the the denial and I just thought this is this is bullshit and but when the again uh with with Mayel and, and talking about his experience and the passion with which he spoke it um it caught me and, um, sparked my curiosity. And so I I started to, um, you know, with small things, um, a few different meditation apps and some reading, um, and slowly started to sort of reap the benefits of taking that time. And I used to say that, um, you sort of I meditate when I'm running or, you know, um, the, the mountains are, are my form of meditation, but I I've actually learned to see that there, there's a little bit of a difference in the difference in stillness and sitting, um, and that mind body connection that Vipassana really is, um, sort of at the root of, of Vipassana. So, um, yeah, with, with meditation, um, has come so, sort of a recognition of, um, of impermanence. Um, and with, with Vipassana that, you know, the changes that we feel, um, physically, um, we connect to, um, that everything is, is constantly changing. And the only thing that, you know, in life that is certain is change. Mm -hmm. And so I have, um, you know, in my Vipassana or my meditation practice, um, that is sort of what something that I've really connected or one of the biggest lessons. Um, you know, when I, when I talk about my traumatic brain injury and being thankful for the lessons that it taught me, um, there's sort of a handful of, of key learnings and impermanence and just embracing, um, that nothing stays the same forever. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, and it's I was- such a, it's such a profound lesson, isn't it? And I try and remind myself about this so much too, because I very much do feel like, I'm in somewhat of a flow state right now, like in a flow period of my life where like I am obsessed and so motivated and so inspired every day. But then I like just trying to remind myself, especially like as our business grows, as the podcast grows, as cool things happen, it's like, it's easy to then feel like, oh, this is going to go on forever. This is going to be amazing but always like trying to remind myself that like things always change you know this is impermanent this is impermanent who knows what's going to happen negative exactly exactly but I mean yeah it's a profound thing right because it is basically what we're talking about is like those shitty shitty months years of our lives prepare us for these unbelievable highs right but the pies are also impermanent. So we have to find the equanimity to use your word through, uh, through all of it. And it's funny, you mentioned Vipassana too, because my brother his. he just finished his 12th Vipassana, which is crazy because I've now run 1200 mile races myself. And so we, we, you know, we're on separate journeys, but I feel like there is that overlap too. And that's, a practice that's completely changed his life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as you said, my did it and meditation had a big impact on your recovery and your, I guess, uh, acceptance of your situation and your embracing of impermanence. So yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. So Jill also let's, I want to talk about your relationship with writing. You talked about your journaling practice and of mm-hmm. course now we've referenced it a couple of times, but you have, an amazing blog, an amazing website where you chronicle your adventures. And I do want to get around to talking about Manaslu and bring things full circle on that too, because that's an incredible achievement that you just experienced. Um, But before we get to that, maybe talk about how writing has helped you process what you've been through and just maybe how you've developed that skill and what value you see in uh, the writing process.
1: Yeah. So writing is not something I've ever been trained in. It's not something that I have ever really, you know, done, um, with, with intention, uh, a little bit, perhaps before, um, September 24, 14 was, you know, maybe if I was traveling, I'd I'd take some notes, but never, um, you know, no, with, with any consistency whatsoever. Um, but since, since the time that I got out of those, um, that, that dark, not actually no. during the darkest, since the time I got out of hospital, um, it's just become part of a daily routine. And really when I think of sort of my therapy, um, I feel that, that journaling is a large part of that, you know, in addition to being in the mountains and my own therapist, um, but writing is a huge part of that. Um, and you know, with no, no structure whatsoever, some days it's, you know, just what am I doing? What's coming up? Um, but also, but it, it's sort of led to um, digging a little bit deeper and recognizing, you know, are there patterns in my writing? Like am I, I'm starting to see that, you know, I'm kind of feeling down this day and or I notice it this week. And um yeah, I think putting it to paper for me um helps me process, you know, recognizing now, um, you know, the 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 dark, but also, you know, like you said, um. Impermanence and and um even you know when I'm having a really good s- what, streak. Yeah <laughs> things seem to be going really well, really positive. Um, you know, that I can write about that, but also I, I think just it helps create awareness um with respect
0: to um to what's really going on and and to what's possible, Jill. I mean it, you're such an inspiration and we should get around to to, yeah, like what you prove to be possible after going through what you have and suffering a traumatic brain injury and being visually impaired. I mean, your, your website not only chronicles your accomplishments, but it does, I think, provide a lens into what you can do after suffering something similar and maybe helping people to, I mean, you're having an impact in a different way, right? In a way that you never would have if this accident never would have happened, right? You would have had an impact on the students that you worked with and on the people in your life, but you wouldn't be able to have this more profound message of seeing things through and continuing to persevere and to celebrate what you can do rather than be destroyed about what you can't do. So I don't know. Does anything resonate there as it relates to uh your blog? I mean, that's just my yeah. interpretation after, you know, reading much of your writing. It's uh it's again, it's metaphorical. It's the mountains of my mind. It's the uh you are doing incredible things physically out in the world, but really it's a it's a meditative process of internal ev- evolution, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, like, like we've alluded to, or I I alluded to earlier and that, that shame, but once I started to open up and once I, um, you know, that, that article, um, that Mayel and I, um, wrote together, um, just, just created, um, I guess a, a little bit, well, it, it sort of initiated that change in perspective of and and his to quote him again of, of sharing the shit. And so taking that journal um, and then uh transcribing it in such a way that others, others can get a glimpse of my story um, and see what am I trying to say? Just, just the the my change of perspective and writing about um vulnerably, And yeah. again, we, as I sort of keep coming back to these, these key words of he, you know, his suggestion of starting a website. And, and at that point it was nobody's, re- you know, interested, you know, I haven't won hard rock. I haven't won an Olympic medal. I'm not a world champion, anything. I haven't climbed, you know, Everest. So, you know, who cares? But the more that I was able to shift my perspective to even just, um, to see how I can, in fact, helping others who are going through darkness, you know what you know you you sort of quickly connected to my story at a time where you were you were in some darkness. I needed it, yeah, seriously, and, and so when I realize like when one person you know when when i when I hear that, it just reminds me of why it is so important that we share our stories and how being vulnerable um, can in fact, you know, add a spark to, to some, to someone else. Yeah. Um, and so in my writing, you know, when I decided, okay, I'll share, but if I'm going to share, I'm all in, it's either that I'm going to write about the hard stuff. Um, and if, you know, if, if, because that's what I feel people connect to. Yeah. And at the beginning it was, okay, I'll do this website, but I'm not doing social media. At that point, no, (laughs) nothing at all Um, because, and part of that Dylan was, was the tie to shame, like, because social media, it's very easy to get caught up in the shoulds of society. Well, we should, um, you know, be looking like these people on Instagram or we should be running this fast or, you know. Isn't this so so
0: great, Jill? Gosh, (laughs) you're coming back to the shoulds. This is just incredible, amazing.
1: by by sharing um, on my website, again, I needed to shift perspective to see, OK, how is anybody going to know about this website if you don't use social media, Joe? Uh, yeah. OK, yeah. <laughs> that took a, that took some nudging. Yeah. Uh, and again, Mayo, <laughs> Uh shortly after that race, I set up an Instagram account. Um, and with very, very much reluctance at first, but now with time, um, I've grown to see how by sharing, I can connect with others and, yeah. um, you know, being very authentic in, you know, if I'm, if I'm sharing a photo, uh, with all my heart, I hope that people read the caption. Like it's not all just, um, summits at 8,000 meters Yeah. Or, you know, um pretty alpine Swiss photos. Yeah. Uh, there's there's much more to it than that. But the analogy um tends to come back to mountains and and um and the, the mountains, mountains
0: of your mind.
1: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So
0: yeah, it's it's so funny, you know, that Mael was one of the inspirations or the motivators to push you to see the value in sharing your story. And I just had Ruth Croft on the podcast, champion Kiwi trail runner yeah. who is so good as an athlete, like one of the truly great athletes of the last, whatever, five to 10 years, but also somebody who in our conversation sort of admitted to a, a very strong reluctance to brag about herself or to talk about herself. Yeah. And it was Madge also who set up her Instagram for, for the first time. And mm-hmm. And I think you know she's sort of slowly come around too to the realization that it is important to sort of share your story. And of course, she doesn't brag about herself. And just because she has an Instagram account doesn't mean that she's a narcissist or whatever. And (laughs) even though there are a lot of self-involved things with social media, it's adding people like Ruth to the conversation and adding people like you to the conversation that actually makes social media a valuable and, and worthwhile thing, and that. Uh, that at least dilutes some of the more narcissistic tendencies of those platforms. So, okay. so so let's finally come around to talking about the stuff that you've done, Jill, because it's so inspiring especially now with the greater context of your story established. Of course, we mentioned that mountains have become your therapy, they've become your sanctuary, they've become the place where you can process everything that you've been through, but also a place where you can prove what's possible and what you can do. Again, going back to that theme of not what you've lost, but what you can still achieve. And uh, recently you summited an 8,000 meter peak. You absolute rock star! insanity. (laughs) I actually, have you, uh, have you seen the, um, the new documentary on Netflix called 14 Peaks? I have actually,
1: those are friends of
0: mine. Um, Those guys are so cool.
1: Yeah, and they were actually on Manaslu with me.
0: (laughs) No kidding, you know Nims Purja and his team? (laughs) Oh my gosh, (laughs) oh my gosh. For the listeners, you guys have to watch this documentary on Netflix. It's called 14 Peaks. One of which Jill recently summited Manaslu. So so Jill, talk about uh, where the ambition came from to tackle an 8,000 meter peak? And I guess also in that answer, just kind of explain to what is admittedly a more running audience, the significance of the 8,000 meter peak and why those are kind of iconic.
1: Um, well, I think that, I think it's the challenge of mountains that inspires me. And, um, you know, the, the serenity, whether you're running in or around them. Um, but also, you know, just while moving body and mind, um, I just feel that mountains provide an opportunity to really learn more about myself and an opportunity really that I nearly lost. You know, I, I was given three days to live and now, um, I truly do em- embrace, um, all that, that I have. And so, um, yeah, I just feel that, that um the sort of one thing led to another from from hiking to running to getting um getting a little bit higher and um some altitude that yeah that really inspired me and inspired that um sense of of pushing myself um and in in a place that um yeah it's just in, in, you know, in the mountains are where I feel at my best, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, I sort of alluded to earlier. Um, and so I learn more about what I'm really capable of. And I've learned that, you know, through my traumatic brain injury, it's, it's taught me strength that I never really knew or never thought existed. Yeah. So, um, I, I feel, you know, by it's climbing an 8,000 meter peak was something that Sort of, it just sort of um you know was never was never part of a long-term plan but it's um, inspired me sort of the higher i've gotten and um and by doing that you know there i feel that there there is still a lot of stigma associated with with vision loss with eating disorders, with brain injuries and for others um perhaps by by witnessing or um, seeing what i'm doing through these challenging mountain experiences that it might help others, Sort of um, take things into perspective um, and, and sort of engage them in the power of possibility. You know, the the um sometimes we we can get caught up in this this darkness where you know in, in tough times and believe that things aren't going to get better. But I hope that by sharing my story and inviting others to follow along as I challenge mounds of my mind, but also now in the uh, 14, 8,000 meter peaks, um, that others will will be able to, to connect to that somehow. It might not look like brain injury or vision loss, um, eating disorders, et cetera, but every human being can connect to adversity, you know, whether it be a broken ankle or being um in the middle of a pandemic where, you know, it just feels like this is going to last forever. Um, and so I hope you know, by by continuing to challenge myself and inviting others in, um, you know, by sharing more openly, by talking authentically, and and using social media, and um, in addition to to the deeper stuff on my website, um, yeah, that that by challenging my myself, um, I, I'm inspired, and just having others along that I hope that I can ignite something in them as yeah.
0: well. So uh, it strikes me that people might be curious. You know, given the fact that you have lost 70% of your vision, practically what these expeditions look like for you, How how is your approach to the mountain different than somebody who has 100% vision? Like any uh, any practical things about how you navigate your way up there and how, you know, your support teams or your, uh, you know, the people you climb with are are sort of part of that journey? I'm curious
1: um and and for me, i I actually get that question quite a bit. How do you do it? but i not not but. um, I feel that it's all I really know. like there there wasn't, um, you know, I, I didn't know that this change in vision was going to happen, and although it, you know that, closed in an instant, I just feel that, that, that trauma, uh, trauma, um, and the sort of 26 months in hospitals, it, it just became who I am the the vision. So to me, it feels like, uh dare I say normal, I don't know any different anymore. Um, you know, and if I was instantly given that vision, the eyesight back, then, then maybe I would, it would feel different. Um, what I never want is to anyone is for anyone to treat me differently. So, um, practically, you know, uh, or physically I I'm learning to advocate for myself more where initially, you know, at the time of that first year traveling, you know, I just kept everything. I never talked about it at all. I would just hide in the back right corner. And mm-hmm. I say right because I'm physically blind on the right hand side. I never want anyone sitting here. Yeah. I want them to be over here because the vision that I have comes from the bottom of my left eye. Huh. I need to, I can't see above the horizon. So if I'm to look up, I need, it comes from my neck. Uh, and so um, originally that actually resulted in a lot of um, physical sort of um, abnormal uh, in, somewhat injuries, consequences. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if you need to shift your head and it's only coming from this way. So my head was on a really awkward tilt, mm-hmm. which uh, messes up the alignment in your back, which aligns, you know, your huh. knee. And so I was having knee trouble because I can't see properly. Oh my gosh. It was just a shit storm. Yeah.
0: Wow. And,
1: and, you know, again, trying to accept all of that was, I wanted no part of it anyway. So coming back. um, So yeah. So any, um, on the mountain, um, I now, you know, if, if someone moves to my right, um, I will, I'll ask or at least move myself um, and talk a little bit more about why. Um, Mm -hmm. Originally, I wouldn't. I just um, probably end up frustrated, Uh, you know, because I have only vision coming from the bottom of my left eye to have any sense of depth perception. Your eyes work together um, and I don't have that. So specifically downhill and even more when I'm mostly when I'm running, um, you know, there's more trips because I miss that, that different depth. mm -hmm. Um, and so accepting, you know, the falls that that took a long time, a (laughs) lot of
0: broken glass. I I still don't (laughs) accept the falls and I have (laughs) a (laughs) hundred (laughs) percent vision.
1: So the scars, like the scars, my hands and my knees can tell just from falls, you know, those are their own, um, sort of own chapters in my book. But I've, I feel I've come a long way from, um, you know, initially that in that first year, the falls, I you know throwing glasses because I was so angry, so upset that you know it was I I couldn't
0: do these things still and probably still angry. battling the shame, yeah, and the yeah, yeah. You can't do. yeah. And So I, I'm I want to talk about Manaslu because it feels to me like, I mean, this is a huge victory, right? Does it feel like that for you? I mean. An 8,000-meter peak is something that a very small percentage of the history of humanity has ever experienced, that triumphant feeling of standing on top of one of those proud Himalayan peaks where you've spent a lot of time in the last several years. Talk yeah. about the feeling of being at the summit, and then maybe also talk about your your other personal philosophy outside of impermanence that that growth doesn't happen at the summit.
1: Yeah. And that perfectly ties together, Dylan. And that standing on the top, it's, I I still don't feel that that challenged me like my brain injury has. Um, And, but standing up there, it is, it's all the people that didn't give up on me when I gave up on myself that I'm thinking about. And I get goosebumps still saying that because I don't feel that anyone will ever know the significance that they have played in getting me to the top of that mountain. Um, you know, it's, it's not me standing up there. It's all of those people who kept putting the tubes back in, who kept calling or writing or checking in, even though I pushed them away, you know, I, if it was up to me, you know, I would have been six feet under and instead I'm standing on the top of the eighth highest mountain in the world. Um, and inspired to, to push that and, and to keep climbing. So, um, yeah, the summit is, it's not me up there. It's so many others.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So cool. I just want to read one more thing from your website here that moved me. This is from one of your posts about Manaslu and your successful summit bid. It was just a couple of months ago, wasn't it? September or something?
1: Yeah, it was the 27th of September. And then him. So
0: that's like pretty much what the seven year anniversary of the accident
1: i was i was on uh left for Manaslu the first week of the anniversary of the of the um expedition yeah wow. wow and i get quite nostalgic so that day can hit in different ways but huh. i'm this year it was um there was a little sense of pride in there even though the people that i was with
0: there um, should be a sense of pride <laughs> yeah but
1: I, you know it's it's that's a an inner an inner connection and the people that i was with you know i wasn't that familiar with or they didn't have they didn't know sort of how far I've come to get where I am but uh, I, I do remember journaling and feeling a sense of yeah, I have come a long way and thankful for the
0: lessons. Great. so let me just read something here just a couple paragraphs from your website mountains mind.com. and you're referring to to slew here. And you say she has weathered thousands of years of storms and quakes yet her soul does not live in the past. She has changed over time and so have I. The the stories my scars tell have strengthened me. All she is, is right now, strong and present. As I walk from Kathmandu into her shadows, trek through her foothills and climb to her 8,163 meter peak, I strive to become one with her to embody her strength and resilience a global expedition team guided me inward to discover strength in my soul with gratitude for the lessons of an expedition of survival. I begin packing tents and boots and stoves socks and my summit suit to become one with the soul of the Himalaya while knowing the most important equipment is within. Oh, <laughs> makes me want to cry. Joe just <laughs> beautiful, beautifully written, you know, and I think, Sort of ties our entire conversation into a bow, doesn't it? Of just like it is a metaphor, right? And it is like as you're packing your tents and boots and stoves, yeah. We have to acknowledge the most important equipment is within. And uh the way you say that is just like, wow, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. So Um, I feel like that's a really good place to end Jill, but maybe final question for you. Uh, you teased on your Instagram recently that, uh, you have more big plans in the works after recently summiting, uh, 8,000 meter Manaslu in the, in the Himalaya.
1: Yeah. Is
0: there, uh, is there any news you can break on the podcast about what inspiring objective you're going to tackle next?
1: It's a big objective and it's kind of timely or it's it's absolute coincidence because I've had this idea now since my meniscus experience um that 14 peaks came out last week. Um but now um I am one thirteenth, or sorry 114th of my goal to stand atop all 14 of the world's 8000 meter peaks.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> so yeah, while climbing all of the world's um yeah. 14 peaks above 8,000 meters. I, like I mentioned earlier, just aim to um, break down any stigma associated yeah. with brain injury or vision loss and eating
0: disorders. So um, so what's next? What's next? Um, How dog can people get involved.
1: Oh, um, please. Yeah. So right now I'm, I'm trying to um, get some support in terms of, you know, this is a big project. It's yeah. uh, financially very, very, um, Himalayan yes
0: yes
1: (laughs) and and I can't do it alone so I'm working right now this is sort of when I'm not training I'm working on on trying to make some connections to try to get some support um and with you know with that to um you know with the the awareness I'm talking about and and yeah um so sorry your question is how can people get involved? Well,
0: I want to know Daligari is, is next. Okay. Dalagari
1: is next in Kachenjunga, So I will do those two this coming spring. Uh-huh. So The training I'm doing right now is quite the technical ice climbing uh, oh. is, is not that there will be technical ice climbing up there, but that's going to just help with my mountaineering skills. And, um, and I feel like with my vision, um, well, it's just, it's just good training. Yeah. And, and so I will be here and then head back to Nepal in January and do some intense training there for February. And then Dalagari will start in March, Uh quickly after in, in Kachanjungo. And then I'll head to Pakistan in the summer. Um, I'll publish the
0: calendar soon. Please. Yes. Incredible. So is there going to be a place where, I mean, I want to commit to you right now that I will make a a contribution towards, uh, funding your project, uh, personally, and with our business, I, I, for, for all you have done for me and all the inspiration you have provided, I would love to contribute to, uh, whatever fund there is, but there's going to be thousands of people who listen to this. Is there any place that we can direct them to where they would potentially be able to, uh, contribute as well?
1: So at this point, the best way, um, to contribute was just to connect via the website. Uh-huh. um on the contact page my my details are there um okay. but i i have a couple core people who are helping um hopefully we'll get like a a perhaps a, a crowdfunding or um site developed um but also just any connections with respect to you know to these communities of traumatic brain injury vision sunglass um you yeah. know I, I have um msr is currently jumped on board cool. uh, they're coming out a little bit, but i need you know i do i do need more than gear um to make this to make this possible yeah um, so if you stay tuned to well, management- Jill
0: let me I'd be happy to help you out with this kind of stuff. Oh, be yeah. Amazing. yeah, whether it's, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> yeah, trying to trying to find some some sponsors or, uh, you know, generally trying to galvanize a community of people who are inspired to help uh, shepherd you on this journey, which okay. uh, will do nothing but good things in the world. And uh, I will. You uh-huh. have my word that I will personally make a a uh, a solid contribution, and you and I can connect about that uh, after we talk here in the recorded setting. But I'm so inspired by you, Jill. And this is such a huge, incredible undertaking for you. You've done the first one with Manaslu. Thirteen more to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be uh, yeah, probably several years in the making, and uh, we will test you to your limits, but you know, that's what, uh, all worthwhile things do for us, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, just like I said earlier, I feel that no mountain can challenge me the way my brain injury has. And, and that's, um, helped teach me about strength and that which I can do and back to impermanence <laughs> and Beautiful. perspective. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, what a perfect place to end things, Jill. I have so enjoyed our friendship. You inspire me deeply and I so appreciate you coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. It's great to have a conversation with you. And I can't wait for our trails to actually connect again soon.
0: Yes, hopefully soon. Wow, thank you so much to Jill. Isn't she just so amazing? I hope you all will go visit the show notes from this week's episode. Spend some time this holiday season digging through some of the links. First and foremost, as I mentioned in the intro, please, if you can, donate even a little bit of cash to Jill's GoFundMe campaign. She's really an amazing person. I would really love it if the free trail community could make a dent in that GoFundMe campaign goal. Uh, Also check out Jill's website, mountainsofmymind.com and read some of her amazing blog posts about her journey and the therapeutic influence mountains and outdoor sport in general. Have on all of our lives. Also, if you don't follow Jill on Instagram, she is so inspiring. I think you will love seeing her photographs and her wonderful writing in your Instagram feed. That link is also in the show notes. I also link to the Trail Run magazine piece that we talked about in our conversation and to Jill's Vision 8000 project documents that we talked about at the end of the episode. Uh, but generally, uh, there's a lot of great stuff that you can find in the show notes. If you want to go down a rabbit hole and get inspired by what Jill has out there on the internet, but wow, what an inspiring person. I hope you all are feeling the vibe from this episode. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season until next time. Let's embrace impermanence together. I love you all very much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.